Chapter twenty six of The Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty six Chatham Dockyard. There are some small out of the way landing places on the Thames and the Medway where I do much of my summer idling. Running water is favourable to daydreams, and a strong tidal river is the best of running water for mine. I like to watch the great ships standing out to sea or coming home richly laden, the active little steam tugs confidently puffing with them to and from the sea horizon, the fleet of barges that seem to have plucked their brown and russet sails from the ripe trees in the landscape, the heavy old colliers, light in ballast, floundering down before the tide, the light screw barks and schooners imperiously holding a straight course, while the others patiently tack and go about, the yachts with their tiny hulls and great white sheets of canvas, the little sailing-boats bobbing to and fro on their errands of pleasure or business, and, as it is the nature of little people to do, making a prodigious fuss about their small affairs. Watching these objects, I still am under no obligation to think about them, or even so much as to see them, unless it perfectly suits my humour. As little am I obliged to hear the plash and flop of the tide, the ripple at my feet, the clinking windlass afar off, or the humming steamship paddles further away yet. These, with the creaking little jetty on which I sit, and the gaunt high watermarks and low watermarks in the mud, and the broken causeway, and the broken bank, and the broken stakes and piles, leaning forward as if they were vain of their personal appearance and looking for their reflection in the water, will melt into any train of fancy. Equally adaptable to any purpose or to none are the posturing sheep and kine upon the marshes, the gulls that wheel and dip around me, the crows, well out of gunshot, going home from the rich harvest fields, the heron that has been out a-fishing, and looks as melancholy up there in the sky as if it hadn't agreed with him. Everything within the range of the senses will, by the aid of the running water, lend itself to everything beyond that range, and work into a drowsy hole not unlike a kind of tune, but for which there is no exact definition. One of these landing-places is near an old fort, I can see the gnaw light from it with my pocket-glass, from which fort mysteriously emerges a boy, to whom I am much indebted for additions to my scanty stock of knowledge. He is a young boy, with an intelligent face burnt to a dust-colour by the summer sun, and with crisp hair of the same hue. He is a boy in whom I have perceived nothing incompatible with habits of studious inquiry and meditation unless an evanescent black eye i was delicate of inquiring how occasioned should be so considered to him am i indebted for ability to identify a custom-house boat at any distance and for acquaintance with all the forms and ceremonies observed by a homeward-bound indiaman coming up the river when the custom-house officers go aboard her but for him i might never have heard of the dumb ague respecting which malady I am now learned. Had I never sat at his feet, I might have finished my mortal career, and never known that when I see a white horse on a barge's sail, that barge is a lime barge. 
for precious secrets in reference to beer am I likewise beholden to him, involving warning against the beer of a certain establishment by reason of its having turned sour through failure in point of demand. Though my young sage is not of opinion that similar deterioration has befallen the ale. He has also enlightened me touching the mushrooms of the marshes, and has gently reproved my ignorance in having supposed them to be impregnated with salt. His manner of imparting information is thoughtful and appropriate to the scene. As he reclines beside me, he pitches into the river a little stone or piece of grit, and then delivers himself oracularly, as though he spoke out of the centre of the spreading circle that it makes in the water. He never improves my mind without observing this formula. With the wise boy, whom I know by no other name than the spirit of the fort, I recently consorted on a breezy day when the river leapt about us and was full of life. I had seen the sheaved corn carrying in the golden fields as I came down to the river, and the rosy farmer, watching his labouring men in the saddle on his cob, had told me how he had reaped his two hundred and sixty acres of long-strawed corn last week, and how a better week's work he had never done in all his days. Peace and abundance were on the countryside in beautiful forms and beautiful colours, and the harvest seemed even to be sailing out to grace the never-reaped sea in the yellow-laden barges that mellowed the distance. It was on this occasion that the spirit of the fort, directing his remarks to a certain floating iron battery lately lying in that reach of the river, enriched my mind with his opinions on naval architecture, and informed me that he would like to be an engineer. I found him up to everything that is done in the contracting line by Messrs. Pito and Brassi, cunning in the article of concrete, mellow in the matter of iron, great on the subject of gunnery. When he spoke of pile-driving and sluice-making, he left me not a leg to stand on, and I can never sufficiently acknowledge his forbearance with me in my disabled state. While he thus discoursed, he several times directed his eyes to one distant quarter of the landscape, and spoke with vague mysterious awe of the yard. Pondering his lessons after we had parted, I bethought me that the yard was one of our large public dockyards, and that it lay hidden among the crops down in the dip behind the windmills, as if it modestly kept itself out of view in peaceful times, and sought to trouble no man. Taken with this modesty on the part of the yard, I resolved to improve the yard's acquaintance. My good opinion of the yard's retiring character was not dashed by nearer approach. It resounded with the noise of hammers beating upon iron, and the great sheds or slips under which the mighty men of war are built loomed business-like when contemplated from the opposite side of the river. For all that, however, the yard made no display, but kept itself snug under hillsides of cornfields, hop-gardens, and orchards, its great chimneys smoking with a quiet, almost a lazy, air, like giants smoking tobacco and the great shears moored off it, looking meekly and inoffensively out of proportion, like the giraffe of the machinery creation. The store of cannon on the neighbouring gun-wharf had an innocent toy-like appearance, and the one red-coated sentry on duty over them was a mere toy figure, with a clockwork movement. As the hot sunlight sparkled on him, 
he might have passed for the identical little man who had the little gun, and whose bullets they were made of lead, lead, lead. Crossing the river and landing at the stairs, where a drift of chips and weed had been trying to land before me, and had not succeeded, but had got into a corner instead, I found the very street-posts to be cannon, and the architectural ornaments to be shells. And so I came to the yard, which was shut up tight and strong with great folded gates, like an enormous patent safe. Those gates devouring me, I became digested into the yard, and it had, at first, a clean-swept holiday air, as if it had given over work until next wartime though indeed a quantity of hemp for rope was tumbling out of storehouses, even there, which would hardly be lying like so much hay on the white stones, if the yard were as placid as it pretended. Ding, clash, dong, bang, boom, rattle, clash, bang, clink, bang, dong, bang, clatter, bang, bang, bang. What on earth is this? This is, or soon will be, the Achilles, iron armour-plated ship. Twelve hundred men are working at her now. Twelve hundred men working on stages over her sides, over her bows, over her stern, under her keel, between her decks, down in her hold, within her and without, crawling and creeping into the finest curves of her lines, wherever it is possible for men to twist. Twelve hundred hammerers, measurers, caulkers, armourers, forgers, smiths, shipwrights, Twelve hundred dingers, clashers, dongers, rattlers, clinkers, bangers, bangers, bangers. Yet all this stupendous uproar around the rising Achilles is as nothing to the reverberations with which the perfected Achilles shall resound upon the dreadful day when the full work is in hand for which this is but note of preparation. The day when the scuppers that are now fitting like great dry thirsty conduit pipes shall run red all these busy figures between the decks, dimly seen bending at their work in smoke and fire, are as nothing to the figures that shall do work here of another kind in smoke and fire that day. These steam-worked engines alongside, helping the ship by travelling to and fro, and wafting tons of iron plates about as though they were so many leaves of trees, would be rent limb from limb if they stood by her for a minute then." to think that this achilles monstrous compound of iron tank and oaken chest can ever swim or roll to think that any force of wind and wave could ever break her to think that wherever i see a glowing red-hot iron point thrust out of her side from within as i do now there and there and there and two watching men on a stage without with bared arms and sledge-hammers strike at it fiercely and repeat their blows until it is black and flat I see a rivet being driven home, of which there are many in every iron plate, and thousands upon thousands in the ship. To think that the difficulty I experience in appreciating the ship's size when I am on board arises from her being a series of iron tanks and oaken chests, so that internally she is ever finishing and ever beginning, and half of her might be smashed, and yet the remaining half suffice and be sound then to go over the side again and down among the ooze and wet to the bottom of the dock in the depths of the subterranean forest of dogshaws and stays that hold her up 
and to see the immense mass bulging out against the upper light and tapering down towards me is with great pains and much clambering to arrive at an impossibility of realizing that this is a ship at all and to become possessed by the fancy that it is an enormous immovable edifice set up in an ancient amphitheatre say that at verona and almost filling it yet what would even these things be without the tributary workshops and the mechanical powers for piercing the iron plates four inches and a half thick for rivets shaping them under hydraulic pressure to the finest tapering turns of the ship's lines and paring them away with knives shaped like the beaks of strong and cruel birds to the nicest requirements of the design these machines of tremendous force so easily directed by one attentive face and presiding hand seem to me to have in them something of the retiring character of the yard obedient monster please to bite this mass of iron through and through at equal distances where these regular chalk marks are all round monster looks at its work and lifting its ponderous head replies i don't particularly want to do it but if it must be done the solid metal wriggles out hot from the monster's crunching tooth and it is done dutiful monster observe this other mass of iron it is required to be pared away according to this delicately lessening and arbitrary line which please to look at monster who has been in a reverie brings down its blunt head and much in the manner of dr johnson closely looks along the line very closely being somewhat near-sighted i don't particularly want to do it but if it must be done monster takes another near-sighted look takes aim and the tortured piece writhes off and falls a hot tight twisted snake among the ashes the making of the rivets is merely a pretty round game played by a man and a boy who put red-hot barley sugar in a pope joan board and immediately rivets fall out of window but the tone of the great machines is the tone of the great yard and the great country we don't particularly want to do it but if it must be done how such a prodigious mass as the achilles can ever be held by such comparatively little anchors as those intended for her and lying near her here is a mystery of seamanship which i will refer to the wise boy for my own part i should as soon have thought of tethering an elephant to a tent-peg or the larger hippopotamus in the zoological gardens to my shirt-pin yonder in the river alongside a hulk lie two of this ship's hollow iron masts they are large enough for the eye i find and so are all her other appliances i wonder why only her anchors look small i have no present time to think about it for i am going to see the workshops where they make all the oars used in the british navy a pretty large pile of building i opine and a pretty long job as to the building i am soon disappointed because the work is all done in one loft and as to a long job what is this two rather large mangles with a swarm of butterflies hovering over them what can there be in the mangles that attracts butterflies drawing nearer i discern that these are not mangles but intricate machines set with knives and saws and planes which cut smooth and straight here and slantwise there and now cut such a depth and now miss cutting altogether according to the predestined requirements of the pieces of wood that are pushed on below them each of which pieces is to be an oar and is roughly adapted to that purpose before it takes its final leave of far-off forests and sails for england 
Likewise I discern that the butterflies are not true butterflies, but wooden shavings which, being spirited up from the wood by the violence of the machinery, and kept in rapid and not equal movement by the impulse of its rotation on the air, flutter and play and rise and fall and conduct themselves as like butterflies as heart could wish. Suddenly the noise and motion cease and the butterflies drop dead. An oar has been made since I came in, wanting the shaped handle. As quickly as I can follow it with my eye and thought, the same oar is carried to a turning lathe. A whirl and nick, handle made, or finished. The exquisite beauty and efficiency of this machinery need no illustration, but happen to have a pointed illustration today. A pair of oars of unusual size chance to be wanted for a special purpose, and they have to be made by hand. Side by side with the subtle and facile machine, and side by side with the fast-growing pile of oars on the floor, a man shapes out these special oars with an axe. Attended by no butterflies, and chipping and dinting by comparison as leisurely as if he was a labouring pagan getting them ready against his decease at threescore and ten, to take with him as a present to Charon for his boat, the man, aged about thirty, plies his task. The machine would make a regulation oar, while the man wipes his forehead. The man might be buried in a mound made of strips of thin, broad, wooden ribbon, torn from the wood, whirled into oars as the minutes fall from the clock before he had done a forenoon's work with his axe. Passing from this wonderful sight to the ships again, for my heart as to the yard is where the ships are, I notice certain unfinished wooden walls left seasoning on the stocks, pending the solution of the merits of the wood and iron question, and having an air of biding their time with surly confidence. The names of these worthies are set up beside them, together with their capacity in guns, a custom highly conducive to ease and satisfaction in social intercourse, if it could be adapted to mankind. By a plank more gracefully pendulous than substantial, I make bold to go aboard a transport ship, iron screw, just sent in from the contractor's yard to be inspected and passed. She is a very gratifying experience, in the simplicity and humanity of her arrangements for troops, in her provision for light and air and cleanliness, and in her care for women and children. It occurs to me, as I explore her, that I would require a handsome sum of money to go aboard her, at midnight by the dockyard bell, and stay aboard alone till morning. For surely she must be haunted by a crowd of ghosts of obstinate old martinets, mournfully flapping their cherubic epaulettes over the changed times. Though still we may learn from the astounding ways and means in our yards now, more highly than ever, to respect the forefathers who got to sea, and fought the sea, and held the sea, without them. This remembrance putting me in the best of tempers with an old hulk, very green as to her copper, and generally dim and patched, I pull off my hat to her. Which salutation, a callow and downy-faced young officer of engineers, going by at the moment, perceiving appropriates, and to which he is most heartily welcome, I am sure. Having been torn to pieces, in imagination, by the steam circular saws, perpendicular saws, horizontal saws, and saws of eccentric action, I come to the sauntering part of my expedition, and consequently to the core of my uncommercial pursuits. Everywhere, as I saunter up and down the yard, I meet with tokens of its quiet and retiring character. 
there is a gravity upon its red-brick offices and houses, a stage pretense of having nothing worth mentioning to do, an avoidance of display which I never saw out of England. The white stones on the pavement present no other trace of Achilles and his twelve hundred banging men, not one of whom strikes an attitude, than a few occasional echoes. But for a whisper in the air, suggestive of sawdust and shavings, the oar-making and the saws of many movements might be miles away. Down below here is the great reservoir of water, where timber is steeped in various temperatures as part of its seasoning process. Above it, on a tram-road supported by pillars, is a Chinese enchanter's car, which fishes the logs up when sufficiently steeped, and roll smoothly away with them to stack them. When I was a child, the yard being then familiar to me, I used to think that I should like to play at Chinese Enchanter, and to have that apparatus placed at my disposal for the purpose by a beneficent country. I still think that I should rather like to try the effect of writing a book in it. Its retirement is complete, and to go gliding to and fro among the stacks of timber would be a convenient kind of travelling in foreign countries, among the forests of North America, the sodden Honduras swamps, the dark pine woods, the Norwegian frosts, and the tropical heats, rainy seasons, and thunderstorms. The costly store of timber is stacked and stowed away in sequestered places, with the pervading avoidance of flourish or effect. It makes as little of itself as possible, and calls to no one, come and look at me. And yet it is picked out from the trees of the world, picked out for length, picked out for breadth, picked out for straightness, picked out for crookedness, chosen with an eye to every need of ship and boat. Strangely twisted pieces lie about, precious in the sight of shipwrights. Sauntering through these groves, I come upon an open glade where workmen are examining some timbers recently delivered quite a pastoral scene, with a background of river and windmill, and no more like war than the American states are at present like a union. Sauntering among the rope-making, I am spun into a state of blissful indolence, wherein my rope of life seems to be so untwisted by the process as that I can see back to very early days indeed, when my bad dreams, they were frightful, though my more mature understanding has never made out why, were of an interminable sort of rope-making, with long minute filaments for strands, which, when they were spun home together close to my eyes, occasioned screaming. Next I walk among the quiet lofts of stores, of sails, spars, rigging, ships' boats, determined to believe that somebody in authority wears a girdle and bends beneath the weight of a massive bunch of keys, and that, when such a thing is wanted, he comes telling his keys like blue beard, and opens such a door. Impassive as the long lofts look, let the electric battery send down the word, and the shutters and doors shall fly open, and such a fleet of armed ships, under steam and under sail, shall burst forth as will charge the old medway, where the merry Stuart let the Dutch come, while his not-so-merry sailors starved in the streets, with something worth looking at to carry to the sea. Thus I idle round to the medway again, where it is now flood-tide, and I find the river evincing a strong solicitude to force away into the dry dock 
where Achilles is waited on by twelve hundred bangers, with intent to bear the whole away before they are ready. To the last the yard puts a quiet face upon it, for I make my way to the gates through a little quiet grove of trees, shading the quaintest of Dutch landing-places, where the leaf-speckled shadow of a shipwright, just passing away at the further end, might be the shadow of Russian Peter himself. So the doors of the great patent safe at last close upon me, and I take boat again. Somehow, thinking as the oars dip, of braggart pistol and his brood, and of the quiet monsters of the yard, with their, we don't particularly want to do it, but if it must be done, scrunch. End of chapter 26